As someone who's been through the ups and downs of a weight loss journey, I understand the frustrations. Counting calories while pushing through workouts, it's exhausting. That's why if I had the opportunity to try Row Body, I'd be all in. Why? Because Row Body offers access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market alongside personalized lifestyle changes. And as I'm quite a homebody, I love how you can sign up online. So no scheduling a doctor's appointment, no commute to the doctor's office, and no waiting rooms. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's R-O dot C-O slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us on snoozecast.com and follow us on Instagram at snoozecast to get behind-the-scenes content. If you enjoy our show, please write a review on the podcast app. Also, share us with a friend. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by Shining Armor. Tonight, We'll read more stories from King Arthur and his knights. If you'd like to listen to the first story in this series, you can find our episode titled The Sword Excalibur that aired on April 10th, 2020. If you'd like to listen to the most recent previous episode again, The Great Feast aired August 3rd, 2020. King Arthur was a legendary British leader who, according to medieval histories and romances, led the defense of Britain against Saxon invaders in the late 5th and early 6th centuries. The details of Arthur's story are mainly composed of folklore and literary invention, and modern historians generally agree that he is unhistorical. The Knights of the Round Table are the knightly members of the legendary fellowship of the King Arthur in literature. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Take a few deep breaths. After Arthur had proved his prowess in his contest with the eleven kings, he decided to establish his court and the order of the round table. The place he chose was the city of Camelot in Wales 
which had a good situation, being built upon a hill. He called the wise Merlin and ordered him to make a great palace on the summit of the hill. Through his powers of enchantment, Merlin was able to do this very quickly, and within a week, the king and his personal attendants were settled in the palace. The main part consisted of a great assembly hall built of white marble, the roof of which seemed to be upheld by pillars of green and red rock and was surmounted by magnificent towers. The outside walls of the hall were covered with beautiful rows of sculpture. The lowest row represented wild beasts slaying men. The second row represented men slaying wild beasts. The third represented warriors who were peaceful, good men. The fourth showed men with growing wings. Overall was a winged statue with the face of Arthur. Merlin meant to show by means of the first row that formerly evil in men was greater than good, by the second that men began to conquer the evil in themselves, which in time caused them to become really good, noble, and peace-loving men in the third row. And finally, through the refining influence of good King Arthur and his wise helpers, men would grow to be almost as perfect as the angels. The main doorway was in the shape of an arch, upheld by pillars of dark yellow marble. The hall was lighted by fourteen great windows through which the light streamed in soft colors upon the marble floors. Between these windows and along the cornices were beautiful decorations. There were carvings in white marble of birds and beasts and twining vines. There was mosaic work of black and yellow and pink marble and of lapis lazuli, as blue as a lake when the clear sun shines full upon its surface. Under the windows were many stone shields, beneath each of which was the name of a knight. Some shields were blazoned with gold, some were carved, and some were blank. The walls were hung with beautiful tapestries which had been woven by the ladies of the land for Arthur's new palace. On each had been pictured some episode from the life of King Arthur. The drawing of the magic sword from the anvil. The finding of the good sword Excalibur. 
his deeds of justice and acts of kindness and his many battles and wars. The two wings of the palace contained the dining hall and kitchen and the living apartments of all the members of the court who made their home with the king. The dining hall was only a little less beautiful than Arthur's great assembly hall. The walls were hung with cloths of scarlet and gold. The deep fireplace was supported by four bronze pillars. In the middle of the room were long tables made of oak boards set on ivory trestles. At a banquet, the walls were hung with garlands of flowers or festoons of branches. The great kitchen had stone walls and stone flagging. The fireplace was so large that there was room for a whole ox to be roasted, and above hung cranes from which half a dozen kettles could be suspended, and pots of such a size that pigs could be boiled whole in them. All about the walls were cupboards. Some were full of plates of wood, iron, steel, silver, and gold, and flagons, cups, bowls, and salt cellars of gold and silver. Others were used for the storing of cold meats and fruits. There were several tables on which the cooked food was cut, and benches upon which the cooks rested when they were tired of serving the hungry eaters. Well might they have grown tired. Supper, the most important meal of the day, lasted from three until six, and often longer. But the cooks and the little scullion boys who washed the pots and pans, and the attendants who carried in the food to the dining hall, all wore contentment and happiness on their faces as they hurried about with their long blouses tucked out of harm's way for to serve King Arthur and his guests was considered a real privilege. The sleeping rooms were furnished with chests and chairs and beds spread with fine linen and with ermine-lined covers. Hangings of various colors were upon the walls. On the floors were strewn rushes, and among them was thrown mint, which gave forth 
an agreeable odor. After Arthur, his officers, and his servants had been in the palace a few days, the king formally established his court. He invited all the knights who cared to do so to come with their families and retinues and live with him. Some preferred to remain in their own castles, but others gladly went to live with the king. Soon, all were comfortably settled. The king's officers were very important members of Arthur's court. First of these came the Archbishop of Canterbury, who held the highest place in the king's regard. It was his duty to conduct the church services for Arthur and his followers, and to christen, marry, and bury the people of Camelot. Next, Sir Ulfius, as Chamberlain, superintended the care of the king's rooms. Sir Brostius, who was warden, superintended the servants. Sir Kay, who was steward, had charge of all the food in the kitchen. Sir Hector, as treasurer, took care of the king's gold and rendered the accounts. Sir Geraint, managed all the tournaments and outdoor sports of the knights and squires. There were other officers to help these, and all did their work faithfully and lovingly. The knights whom Arthur chose to be members of his round table were mostly selected from these officers. As members of this order, there were 150 of the knights who had shown themselves especially brave in battle and who were devoted followers of the king. Next to being king, the greatest honor which could fall to a warrior was to be made a member of the round table for all who belong to the order were dedicated to the service of mankind. There is no glory greater than such a dedication. In his great hall, Arthur had placed a huge table made round in shape so that there should be neither head nor foot, a higher place nor a lower place. Arthur wished all who sat there to be equals. These Chosen knights 
were to give him counsel in times of peace and of war. It was a solemn hour when the knights took their places. The Archbishop of Canterbury blessed them and their seats. Then each one came to Arthur, who stood at the top of the assembly hall and did him homage. Next, they took their vows. They promised to be brave and good, never false or mean or cruel. If anyone with whom they fought begged for mercy, they would show him mercy and they vowed never to fight for a wrong cause or for money. Each year at the Feast of the Pentecost, they were to repeat these vows. Other members of Arthur's court were old, brave knights who could no longer fight, but who liked to be near the king and his warriors and gave the wisdom of age and experience to his counsels. Young, ambitious, and promising knights who had had but little real experience in battle, and faithful squires who had no real experience at all. Boys from six to fourteen years were pages. There were others who transformed Arthur's court to a real place of grace and beauty. The mothers, wives, sisters, and daughters of the warriors. Although they did not help in the councils of war, these ladies were of great assistance in training the knights to be tender and courteous. They taught the little pages good manners and unselfishness. They assisted the knights in removing their armor when they came in tired from riding or fighting. They sat with Arthur and the knights in the evening in the dining hall, singing or playing upon harps or listening to the tales that were told. When the knights were away, the ladies stayed in their own chambers, hearing wise readings from the Archbishop of Canterbury or other learned men, listening to Merlin's words of wisdom and embroidering the beautiful hangings and cushions which were 
to adorn the palace. It was a month before Arthur's court was established, and during that time, the city of Camelot was a scene of continual merriment. The people of the place were glad that the king had come, for that meant much gain for them. Those of them who did not live in the palace had their houses or shops on the streets which wound about the foot of the hill. Many of the shops belonged to armorers who had armor of all sorts for anyone who would buy. They were glad in their turn to buy the swords of famous knights which had been used in great battles. For such weapons they could always sell again at a good price. These shopkeepers and the servants and the squires and the warriors all united to make the city of Camelot a beautiful one for the sake of their king. The streets were kept strewn with rushes and flowers, rich awnings and silken draperies were hung from the houses. All day long processions passed, made up of the followers of all those lords who gave allegiance to the king. They carried the banners of their masters, crimson, white, or scarlet, gold, silver, blue, making the streets glow with color. The marching squires wore ornamented blouses drawn in at the waist, long silk stockings, and shoes of embroidered leather. The bowmen were dressed in green kirtles, rather shorter than those of the squires, and wore dark woolen hose, and they carried their bows and arrows slung across their shoulders. The servants were dressed in much the same way, except that their blouses were longer and of various colors. Many knights rode in the processions, their long plumes waving in the wind, their armor shining, and their falcons perched upon their wrists.
all day long, too. Bands of musicians played on flutes and timbrels and tabors and harps. Bands of young men and women sang songs in praise of the king. Storytellers went about relating old tales of famous heroes. The young men showed their strength by tumbling and wrestling and their grace by dancing. The young women also danced. The wise Merlin often passed along the streets, walking silently among the merry throngs of people. Sometimes the little king's jester danced at his side, a tiny man who made merriment for the court with his witty sayings. He always wore a tight-fitting red blouse and a peaked cap ornamented with bells. And he carried a mock scepter in the shape of a carved ivory stick. Whenever Arthur appeared before his people, church bells were joyously rung and trumpets were sounded. The king, as he rode, distributed presents to the poor people, capes, coats, mantles, and bushels of pence. In a dining hall at the palace, feasts were held on those days for them, and they were also open for all the people who might come. When the weather was beautiful, tables were placed on the sward outside the palace, and those who cared to ate under the shade of the trees, listening to the music of the blackbirds, whose singing was almost as loud as that of the chorus of damsels who sang in the palace. Every hour the servants carried in and out great quarters of venison, roasted pheasants and herons, and young hawks, ducks, and geese, all on silver platters. Curries and stews and tarts were innumerable. In the midst of all this, a silver fountain had been set from which flowed sweet wine. Even the great feasts of the year 
which were held at Christmas, upon the day of the Passover, at Pentecost, upon Ascension Day, and upon St. John's Day, were not as wonderful as these feasts, when the king held holiday with his people. On these days of merriment, when the people were not eating or drinking or marching in processions, they were at the tournament field watching the combats. Here, the best of King Arthur's knights, mounted on strong horses and wearing heavy armor, were ranged on two sides of the field. Behind each row was a pavilion filled with ladies. Four heralds stood ready to blow the trumpets, which gave the signal for the combats. Each herald wore crimson silk stockings and crimson velvet kirtles tight at the waist and reaching halfway to the knee. When it was time to begin, the heralds blew the trumpets. The ladies bent forward eagerly, and the knights spurred their horses forward, riding with their lances in rest. In a moment, clouds of dust arose, circling up as high as the plumes on the knights' helmets and their lances crashed against each other's shields. Many of the lances broke. Sometimes the shock of contact overthrew a knight, but no one was hurt, for the good King Arthur had ordered that the combats should be friendly. When the jousting had lasted for several hours, those knights who had shown themselves the stronger received prizes from the ladies. The prizes were suits of armor ornamented with gold and swords with jeweled hilts. The knight who, of all, was the strongest chose the lady whom he considered most beautiful and crowned her the queen of love and beauty. During the month of feasting, Arthur made knights of some of the squires. A young squire 
was first obliged to show his skill in tilting. Then his father presented him with falcons and sparrow hawks for hunting and arms and robes. He also gave robes and arms to his son's companions and to their mothers and sisters, furs and embroidered robes and belts of gold. Finally, he gave money to the singers and players and servants and to the poor people of Camelot. At about sunset, the young squire went into the church where the Archbishop of Canterbury held a solemn service. The youth took the armor which he had chosen and placed it on the floor in front of the altar. He was then left alone, and all night he prayed fervently to have strength to be a noble and true knight. In the morning, the king came to the church, attended by his nobles and by the archbishop. The squire laid his sword on the altar, thus signifying his devotion and his determination to lead a holy life. King Arthur bound the sword and spurs on the young man and, taking Excalibur, he smote him lightly on the shoulder with it, saying, Be thou a true and faithful knight. Then the squire took a solemn oath to protect all who were in distress, to do right, to be a pure knight, and to have faith. After that, the Archbishop of Canterbury preached a solemn sermon. When the month of feasting and holiday was ended, the members of the court returned to their usual habits of life. The knights of the round table went forth to right wrongs, and to enforce the law. All who were in distress came to the king for help, and to the whole country 
good King Arthur's court was famous as a place where unkindness was never done and where truth, justice, and love reigned. After Arthur had been established in his court for some time, his neighbor, Leodogran, the king of Cameliard, asked him for help in a battle. To this, Arthur cheerfully consented and gathered his warrior men about him. It chanced, as he and his men were marching past the castle of Leodogran to meet the enemy, the king's daughter, Guinevere, who was the most beautiful lady in all that land, stood on the castle wall to watch her father's allies pass. Now, she did not know of all the knights who rode by, which was Arthur. Many wore gold and jewels on their armor, while the king's armor was plain. But Arthur saw her bending over the wall. She was slender and graceful. Her black hair fell in two long, heavy braids over each shoulder. Her eyes were large and black. And Arthur felt a warm love spring from his heart. He said to himself, If I win this battle for Leodogran, I shall ask him to give me the princess Guinevere for wife. His love for Guinevere made him fight even more bravely than usual, and he soon won the battle. After he had returned to Camelot, he told his knights that he wished to marry 
the princess. They were very glad because they too had seen her and thought her the most beautiful lady they had ever beheld. Then Arthur said, I will send my three good knights, Sir Ulfius and Sir Brostius, and Sir Bedivere to King Leodogran to ask for Guinevere. The three knights set forth happily, feeling certain that King Leodogran would be glad to marry his daughter to their great.